Uh, our next speaker today is uh, Tom Waymond. Um, professor Waymond is professor of classics at BYU. He joined the faculty in religious education in June of 2000 after completing a PhD in New Testament studies at Claremont Graduate School. And he later joined uh, the uh, he started off in religious education, then joined the Faculty of Comparative Arts and Letters at BYU in 2018. I can say, from my own experience, it's much easier to uh, find him. He's just down the hall, a, a couple of doors, and not across campus. He, his recent research interests focus on Christian literary papyri, the Christian community at Oxyrhynchus, and the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. In fact, he has just completed a, a translation from the Greek uh, of the New Testament for Latter-day Saints. He served as a publications director of the Religious Studies Center of, from 2013 until uh, June or July of this year. And again, as a sidelight, in his spare time, in his time away from work, he, uh, he manages a small farm and orchards in Mapleton and enjoys building arts and crafts furniture. Uh, Professor Weemond. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Um, I hope so. I have a little bit of a cold, so I apologize um, if I start coughing. Um, I'd like to st thank Stephen Ricks for the invitation to speak to you today. Um, this is not a conference that I have typically attended, nor is it the type of presentation that I've often made. As a newcomer to your gathering and conversation, I would like to share a few thoughts on how I see the LDS study of religion so that you can understand the context of my remarks today. I spent the past few months reading extensively from things like, quote, no why, end of quote, from Book of Mormon Central, I've reread older Maxwell Institute publications, AKA Farms, current articles from The Interpreter, and I've read some of the posts on Fair Mormon. Perhaps the most obvious thing that I would like to note is that with so many mentions of the word Mormons, there's gonna be some hard conversations in a few months to come. <laughs> My training in New Testament religious studies has forced me to see conversations differently about our, faith, our shared faith trajectory, and in many ways, that have not always been resonated with crowds like you today. So I appreciate your patience for a moment. For many believing Latter-day Saints, history, or recovered history, is a causative force for belief. It obligates one to believe in a faith tradition if the history is tangible, provable, and credible. The idea of history pushing a person to believe underlies so many of the things that I've read by LDS scholars. The Book of Mormon presents the history of an ancient people, Modern temples are patterned on ancient practices. The gospel was taught by Adam, and the list goes on and on. I don't mean to dismiss, dismiss those interests, nor to undermine their claim to historicity. Instead, I would like to draw attention to the fact that a person who is caused to believe by recovered or redescribed history might just as well stop believing, or even feel forced to stop believing by the same historical record. Once a person draws upon the historical record to establish belief, then that entire historical record becomes permanently introduced into the conversation about truth claims. This is the first observation I'd like to make. 
The second that I would like to make today is that someone trained in religious studies as an academic discipline sees the effort to affix historical truth claims to faith positions that will come at a guaranteed cost. Many who see history differently, who weigh historical evidences differently, feel cheated and misled. I think this common narrative highlights a different issue, namely that the emphasis on history has made us lose sight of other genres of religious expression, like myth, fable, magic, or even other forms of religion that are frowned upon by us. The modern world divides religious literature into anachronistic categories like myth and history and magic, but the ancient world had no such distinctions. Myth was lived history, and history is lived myth. As I was reminded in a recent Sunday school class, Job has to be a historical person. And if we somehow are dealing with only an artifact of ancient storytelling, then we somehow lose some part of his message. I feel obligated as a historian of religion to include all aspects of religion in my reconstruction of past and of myth and to find productive means of conquering or engaging the irrational, also known as God. Today for my topic, I would like to talk about purity, but from a Christian perspective, and not try to tie it back into the Hebrew Bible or further cultures. Today my focus is to recover the notion of sacred space in particular, which is defined, quote, as the spatial mediation of religious experience, end of quote, in early Christianity. This will force me to push against some older notions that currently exist. I hope to set out the evidence that Christianity was in its first 200 years topophobic, that it did not desire a temple, nor did it develop a strong sense of sacred space akin to older Jewish models of sacred space. Instead, I would like to try to recover an early Christian sense of sacredness, purity, or even of sacred space that's different. The criticism I might receive for doing this is that I might recover interests and ideas that significantly depart from modern notions of sacred space, sacredness, and purity. I would add in my defense that in drawing on the continuous arc of salvation history, to borrow a term from Dodds, it should not bother us that beliefs that are anomalous to our own are on full display. In dealing with Chloe's letter that documented the divisions of the Corinthian church, Paul set out to describe the harmony that existed among the various apostles and missionaries who had visited the city. He said, quote, do, do, did you not know that you are the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3.16? And you'll notice there the contrast of plural to singular. The plural becomes the new temple. With the temple still standing in Jerusalem, such language intentionally envisioned a new place of holiness within the community that existed outside the temple that have functioned with new priests, apostles, and disciples, and missionaries and where Gentiles were welcomed. The perfect form of the verb knowing, oidate, signals a completed aspect, as though the Corinthians had assumed something else, such as that there was another function in temple of God. The expression was one of contrast between the previously existing and the new. Paul further pushes the new temple imagery, quote, for the temple of God is holy, and likewise you are also. This moment of conceptualized sacred space forced the community of saints to see themselves as sacred, functioning together to replace the older Herodian temple. The most dramatic statement in this context comes from chapter 6, quote, Or did you know that your plural body, that your plural body, singular, is a temple of the Holy Spirit which you have from God and you are not your own? 
As Paul refined his vision of a new sacred space, he replaced the idea that God's presence dwelt in the Jerusalem temple. Now the Holy Spirit, instead of God's presence, dwells in the collective body of the saints. One of the fundamental reasons for the new Pauline dialectic was of sacred space was that Christians were a displaced people seeking a new identity and place. They were pushed into homes where the sacred interacted with the mundane. Within the walls of the Christian house church turned place of worship, the low ceilings, the absence of a ritualized entrance, and the intermingling of the clean and unclean obliterated previous notions of sacred and pushed them to think of an emerging new body as a temple as pure, as a receptacle of God's spirit. Sacred space could no longer exist in a distant or foreign homeland. Christians had to sacralize the local, which is why eating foods offered to idols, 1 Corinthians 8, and head coverings, 1 Corinthians 11, had significant ramifications for localized holiness. Although the New Testament admittedly contains only a small body of letters that document the concerns of a few individuals, they do not contain a longing for a temple to build new temples or to participate in the Jerusalem temple, full stop. <coughs> the earliest house church to be uncovered in Israel from Megiddo shows the transition of a common house to a sacred place of worship. This is it here, one of the oldest Christian edifices to be uncovered. At the main center of the main floor is a typical mosaic with a geometric pattern and two fish. The four cardinal directions contain commemorative inscriptions indicating benefactors who had helped build and refine the existing home. Imagine how thankful the homeowner would be when a benefactor or a benefactress Christian upgraded and remodeled their home to become sacred. One of the plaques thanks three women benefactors. Here, this is the, the plaque here. It says, quote, <clears throat> remember Primilis, Coriaces, and Dorotheus. They are ever helpful. One of the other two placards depicts a table, probably the table used in the celebration of the Eucharist or sacrament. This Megiddo church dates from 230 CE. Michael White's study on the social origins of Christian architecture established an important pattern in the construction of new Christian buildings. The progression was from house church to hallway church, aule, to basilica, to cathedral. None of the early forms sought to recover the sacred architecture of the Jerusalem temple and instead Christians found their inspirations in civic buildings from the Roman Empire. Buildings did not progress from entrance to interior on the model of mundane to sacred, or from sacred to more sacred. Instead, they were representations of need, a place where they could celebrate the Lord's Supper. Greek and Latin-speaking Christians had seen the massive basilicae that were often constructed adjacent to the Roman Forum, they had also seen the enormous peristyle temples of the Greek and Roman world. They chose the basilica, the mundane, for inspiration for the new building. The hall church eventually gave way to the cross church. The basilica eventually de developed into the uniquely Christian ways to, contain, to create sacred spaces of worship. We also know that during this early period of worship, prior to the third century, Christians created rings, articles of clothing, and daily objects that had Christian symbols on them. Clement of Alexandria, Alexandria described some of the parameters under which Christian production such as these could be used without becoming overly profane. Tertullian went so far as to discuss Christian public dress and his concern for modesty when Christians attended the games. One scholar, Larry Hurtado, has argued that the greatest efforts went into the production of Christian texts, particularly the Codex, 
which became expressions of Paul's hope for a unified body of Christian believers who were united in text and mind. These examples of intentional religious signifying demonstrate that Christian identity was a matter of importance and that sacredness was increasingly connected with the Christian body. These second and third century examples took Paul's counsel to heart. They sought to develop the sense of sacred that their bodies had become. Many of the trends towards sacralizing the body, the Lord's Supper, and the ordinary spaces can be seen at the turn of the third century, 200 CE, in the catacombs of San San Callistus, the earliest of the Roman catacombs. These private burial spaces were adorned by frescoes of scenes from the Christian imagination. And they enshrined those spaces with images of the Last Supper, seen there on your left, on your right, um, which notably took place in a home of the actual partaking of the bread and accompanied by a person here on your, oh, sorry, still on your right. Sorry, it's reversed here, so apparently I can't convert very quickly. Um, A person in Oran's position and by the Lord as a shepherd shown as a Roman period individual and of a woman praying with her hands with her hands outstretched with her name written beside her. For the conceptual development of sacred space, several important observations are in display. First, stylistically, these images are all tied together by the simplistic framing in red, green, or blue, which mimics the artwork of the home. The catacombs look like the interior of a Roman home apart from the architecture of death, the burial niches. Second, the names of individuals appear frequently in these works of art, whereas the sacred name of God is absent. Third, the sacrament, and to a lesser extent, baptism, were the sacred ordinances sine qua non of the early catacombs. Returning to Paul. Paul intentionally created both a physical and spiritual sacred space when he said, quote, and I believe I have this here. Sorry, here's our last supper on the right. There's her name that you can see kind of truncated, and she's praying in Oran's position. For I received from the Lord that which I had give, that I had given you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and after he blessed it and broke it, he said, quote, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, for the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this each time you drink it in remembrance of me. Each time that you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Perhaps unintentionally, Paul's highlighting of this moment in Jesus' life forced Christians to find a place to celebrate it. The temple had no room for such an event, where male and female participants could dine together as the Lord had done on the eve of his death. These words of counsel became a prophetic voice of encouragement to speak again the very words that the Lord has spoken. Paul quotes him, This cup is a new covenant in my blood thus inexorably moving towards connecting the body of the Christian believer to the body of the Lord through blood. Perhaps the pinnacle moment in 1 Corinthians comes in chapter 6, verse 11, when Paul said, quote, Some of you were these things, but you were washed, you were made holy, and you were made righteous in the name of the Lord, God, or the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. This verse is difficult to translate for several reasons. The independent clauses, but you were washed, you were made holy, and you were made righteous, are each introduced by the Greek contrastive Allah, <clears throat> which in Koine signals a transition between different things. The verse cannot be translated, but you were washed, then you were made holy, then you were made righteous. Instead, these are states of a believer that happen differently for each person. 
A second issue is that the agent of the aorist passive verbs is missing and not implied. You are washed by whom? You were made holy by whom? The holiness achieved by the Corinthian saints was in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit, but it wasn't specifically event-connected or connected to a distinct individual. One of the forces of causation for the emerging Christian concept of body is holy, the body is temple, is the early Christian emphasis on Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I think I'm doing well on time. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will not be like, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to one another, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. This quotation of Jeremiah occurs in the New Testament as the longest continuous quotation of any passage from the Hebrew Bible and occurs at Hebrews 8, 8 through 12. The language of the New Covenant is found throughout the Pauline epistles. This, this verse occurs frequently in Paul's letters, these verses, and it became a force of conceptual change. You'll notice it seems to imagine the New Covenant in the heart, not the temple. The author of Hebrews imagines a prophetic force of Jeremiah's statement to include a new covenant, but one that will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors, a covenant that required a different type of sacred space than the holiness that was directly connected to foods and purity, and it was a result of an individual's relationship to the temple. Christians felt justified in being different, in seeking to find a new sacred space apart from old forms of worship. It seemed that Paul drew inspiration from this type of language when he shared his thoughts with the Corinthian saints and said, quote, <clears throat> According to my judgment, and I think that I have the Spirit of God, she is happier if she remains as she is. This new type of language, I think I have the Spirit of God, is what I want to focus on. Paul encouraged the saints to find ways to remain in harmony with unbelieving spouses so that spouses might someday receive the blessings of Christianity. They were indeed sharing their own holiness and purity with the people nearby them. The Old Testament would have seen this as a matter of purity and impurity, of Gentile yoke to believer. The New Testament saw the indwelling of God's spirit in the believer as a status marker of the new covenant and a reason to continue exposure between believers and unbelievers. Hebrews explores the relationship of the priest in the dispensation of the new covenant, noting, Quote, For the law appoints men who are prone to weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath which came from the law appoints a son who has forever been made perfect. The point of what we are saying is this. We have a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy place. This Christian idealization of a new sacred space in heaven is part of a replacement theology replacing the priests of the Old Covenant with a mediator who guides the believer into the presence of the majesty on high. Because the author sees the old priests as weak, those are his words, not mine, and categorically deficient, both functionally and lineally, he or she cannot conceive of a replacement to the old temple theology of the Old Covenant. 
Instead, the literal presence of God becomes the idealized sacred space, whereas, whereas the functional and present sacred space became the house church, an edifice wherein Christians could celebrate the Lord's Supper. In conclusion, I want to be clear what I'm trying to say today. First, early Christians channeled their energy into the development of sacred space into sacralizing homes and mundane spaces. They did not initially build new, from the ground up buildings, but instead they transformed older structures into sacred usage spaces. <coughs> their efforts have mostly been lost, but the few remaining pre-Constantinian house churches have a footprint of ordinary house structures with the focal point being the place where they celebrated the Lord's Supper and then later baptism in later, in later structures. Second, Pauline theology indicates that the Christian body became the manifestation of God's spirit in life and the sacred space that had been previously occupied by the Jerusalem temple. As body theology developed over time, Christians asserted morality, beauty, aesthetic appeal into the conversation. With the emerging body of sacred space theology came a subtle repudiation of the temple, of its priests, and of the entire establishment of ritual sacrifice. Christians in the first two centuries were strongly anti-materialistic, topophobic, and heaven-oriented. I also want to be clear what I'm not saying. The survey was not meant to repudiate the LDS concept of biblical continuity or historicity of its sacred literature. Christianity need not be a complete model of modern LDS belief, but rather only one stone or a building block. The emergence of the holiness of the Christian body is an important contribution that needs to be further considered. Thank you. I think I left a few moments for questions. I enjoyed your comments. Uh, basically, what you're suggesting, though, is that in place of Old Testament ritual connected with the temple, which we know changed after the death and resurrection of the Savior, and due to the, I'll call it the humbleness of these ancient early Christians, do you, how do you reconcile ritual, perhaps in the home maybe, uh, that is connected uh, in some fashion that we find whether it be uh, Clement of Alexandria noting washing and anointing, or other or, you know, church, early church fathers, uh, not that they're looking to build another temple, but they're practicing something that is ritual-related within certain contexts, maybe the home or other ones. Um, hopefully all of you could catch that question. Um, I, I see it as a... I suppose I'm forced to see it in a very different eyes. I think we personally have overemphasized the few footprints of early Christian ordinance. I don't want to deny that they're there. I don't want to deny what they mean. I'm not out to do that. But they're, by comparison, the body becomes so much more important. And it's as if we're fixating on a pinpoint in time and missing the larger conversation. And I see Christianity themselves, early Christians, as a reform movement to say that the temple did not sufficiently understand the importance of the body of the believer who went there, and we need more people allowed in there. That wouldn't then deny that they had 
they tried to recover ordinance and other things. Professor Raymond, I'm very interested to hear about what your thoughts are on the uh, episodes in Acts where the apostles go to the Jesuit temple, including Paul himself. Uh, they appear to have some sort of interest, or there appears to be some kind of significance still for them in the Jerusalem temple before its destruction. Um, I'm curious how that factors into your, your discussion here. Would you see this as a later development, perhaps, within Paul's writings, where this emphasis on the body comes in? Uh, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. So, so lineally, historically, we're dealing with Paul writing prior to Acts 20 through 28 and his time in the temple. I think one thing that happens clearly and why I threw in my title this issue of post-revolt, the, the first revolt, is that Christians see the loss of the temple as a solidifying fact by God that he was on their side and that the new no-temple theology was the way forward. I don't doubt for a second that Peter and Paul and others attended the Jerusalem temple. These were people who were both ethnically and culturally Jewish. But whether or not we should see that um, as meaningful for our own understanding of sacred space, I think it was something that was bound to end. So hopefully that helps. I appreciate that. And yes, I, that's one consequence of what I'm after today. I noticed uh, a book that you've published is entirely in Greek as well as the Oxy. Oxyrhynchus, yes. Oxyrhynchus, I can't pronounce it. But that's all right. My colleagues sometimes can't, so that's all right. That might be uh, side by side with an English translation so we can read some of those if we don't read Greek. So that volume, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, there's a small, smallish city in Egypt uh, located um, on, on the Nile called Oxyrhynchus, and it has produced more papyri than any other city in the ancient world by probably double, uh, maybe triple. And a colleague and I put together all of the f first to fourth century Christian texts that were found there. 50% uh, of our earliest biblical papyri come from this city, and so we did translate all of those in that volume. It's meant for academics. It's meant to talk about those um, for, for people who have academic training want access to this body of material. They are in Greek and in English, so we, we do translate. Uh, that might be my New Testament or apocrypha book. I have one that's only in Greek. So apologies for that. Yes, I see a question there. So I, I'm just wondering, so in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord mentions when he speaks of temples, he, he says that they're required for his people, except in times of poverty or when they're not able to make it. I wonder, do you think in early Christianity, as of course you, as you say, they were scattered and, and of course they were persecuted, 
they didn't have a place or a community to build those things. Do you think that's the reason why? And the Apostle Paul was simply reminding them, yes, the temple is there, but it's really more about um, the individual and also our community and how we apply those principles on a personal level. Do you think that's the reason why they told us that way? I, I can't overemphasize how important poverty is in early Christianity. If I just for a moment translate some of the major players, their names in, in the New Testament, we have Lucky, the Greek, the third, and the stubby boy. That's Paul, Fortunatus, Achaicus, and Tertius. They all have common slave names, and Paul defines himself as a slave. Ego eimi doulos Christu. That's how he introduces himself. I am a slave a servant of Christ. I think poverty is a major influence in this dispensation. Yeah, and, and I, am I keeping time, Stephen? Or? Okay, no, I, okay. He says we can have one more question. I'll make this short. Um, I can see a, a real need for your comments on modesty, perhaps, um, morality, beauty, that which is aesthetically pleasing in our dress as part of making your body the temple. We're really struggling as a church with our, particularly our young women, in giving them reasons for dressing differently than the world. What, what texts would you suggest that we look at to recover some of these ideas in our discussion? Um, I think what we have to probably dive into is 1 Corinthians in particular, but also Romans. Uh, Romans tries to capture the idea of failure of an old ideology and the recovery of a new. And I think that Paul's recovery of a new, of a new um, is, is very productive ground for the emergence of a new sacredness. And I would extend that that new sacredness applies equally to men and, and women. Thank you. <laughs>